How far is too far? How long is too long? How much is too much? We are people of extremes. We push and we pull. We stretch and we test. In our endeavors to push the limits, see how far we can go. I wonder this morning, can we go too far? Can we be away too long? Can we sin too much? Is there a limit to God's grace? Is there a point when we have simply gone beyond the ability of God to save? How is it that we make our way back to God? I want to give you some hope this morning. However far you might have traveled, however long it has been, however much you have sinned, no one has ever gone too far that God can't save. No one has ever gone too long or no one has ever sinned too much for God not to save. And and as we think about how far can we go, how much can we sin, how long can we be gone, the question really is for us, how do we return to the Lord? So this morning... You might be thinking, you know, I I, I really haven't gone far, but I've gone a little. I've gone some. I've I've sinned some. There 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 is a increase. How how do we return to the Lord? Whether whether we're not a Christian or whether we are a Christian, how do we return to the Lord daily as we seek to follow Christ? As, As we seek to follow God, how How do we return to Him each day in our sin? How do we approach this this holy God? Friends, that's what we want to think about together in God's Word today. How do we return to this God who will see helps in our times of need? Now, over the last two weeks, we considered the various uh, travels of the Ark of God as it's made its way through from Israel to the, the nation of Philistia, where it sort of made various travels throughout the countryside. It's visited various cities, and we learned that it's made its way back to the nation of Israel. And through that story, we learned that God had been faithful to His promise to destroy the wicked priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, because of their rebellion against Him. Moreover, He also departed as we learn from Israel, because Israel had turned to idols, they had turned to worshiping other gods rather than Him, and therefore, because of their sinful idolatry, God just left. He said, I'm, I'm sort of done. I'm going to, instead of exiling the people, something He will do later, um, He exiles Himself. He, he leaves Himself. But in the midst of that, we learned that there was hope. The story doesn't end in chapter 6, thankfully. In in chapter 6, if it sort of just ended there, God left, story over, there would be no hope. But there's hope because the story continues for many more chapters. Uh, a dozens of chapters will follow as God is being faithful to His people to raise up a king who will be faithful to lead His people, to shepherd them 
And as we've seen, God has chosen Samuel uh, as a faithful leader, one who will lead God's people back to him. And so what we want to think about is, is it sort of exemplified in the person of Samuel, this faithful leader who will shepherd God's people back to faithful worship of the true God. We see Samuel leading God's people well in that way and passing that baton off to the next leaders. In the weeks ahead, we'll, we'll begin to shift from the ark narrative to this first king, the very first king of Israel, Saul, who will lead God's people but not lead faithfully. We will see Saul is a man of the people versus a man after God's own heart, which is David. And so this is where we are this morning in 1 Samuel. So I invite you to turn to chapter 7, page 230 in, in the Pew Bible before you. And if you don't have your Bible, you don't have a Bible, just grab one in front of you, open there uh, to page 230, and uh, you'll see a big number 7 there. And as you see that big 7, look for a small 2, uh, which is near it. And that's where we're going to begin. And again, uh, often the, the chapter breaks and things are, are, are quite unnatural, and so we've decided to start with verse 2 today. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Eshteroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from this pod and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as a Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up beside Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of Philistines. There was peace also between the Israelites and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, where his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. 
God saves those who will return, who will turn from their sins and trust in Him alone for salvation. This is, if you want a big idea, a singular point of this story, it is this. God will save those who turn from their sins, from their idolatry, from their idol worship, and trust in Him alone for salvation. And the purpose of this sermon and our time together is to call all of us back, not just the non-Christians. So so if you're thinking this morning, wow, this is just a great little evangelistic message for non-Christians to hear, you have, you have mistaken the point of this passage. Because this, the point of this passage is to a people who are God's people, a people chosen out of the nations, an elect group of people who need to turn from their sins and trust in Christ. And so, Christian, this is just as much as for, for us as it is for the non-Christian this morning. How do we return to the Lord? So if you've drifted in your faith, if you've drifted somewhere in your pursuit of God, in your worship of God, there's some way in your, your life you have, you have gone away and gone astray. As we sung earlier in Come Thou Fount, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Friends, I am prone to wonder. You are prone to wonder. How do we get back when we wonder? Well, we see laid out here three sort of three steps, if you will. First, by repenting of our sins. Second, by trusting in Christ. Third, by remembering, by remembering that only the Lord has the power to save. Those three ways is how we return to the Lord. By repenting, by trusting, and by remembering. Friends, they're laid out very clearly for you in the text, so let's look at them. Number one, repent of your sins. Repent of your sins. In verses 2-4, through we are told that Samuel calls the nation of Israel to repent of their sins. In verse 2, we are told that it's some 20 years that the nation of Israel has been uh, sort of without the worship of Israel. Uh, if you think this morning, man, my week has been bad. I have been faithful, unfaithful to the Lord this week. Friends, the nation of Israel was unfaithful for 20 years, but God showed grace to them. For 20 years, uh, God had gone silent and all the nation of Israel lamented, cried out for the Lord. They had come to the end of their rope in their life and they finally turned back to the Lord. And Samuel said, okay, if you're going to follow God, if you're going to turn from your sin, then this is how you do it. And we see beautifully in verses 3-4, through this sort of the way you and I, uh, the way they and us are to turn from our sin. First, we see that he tells them to put away the foreign gods and the Asherah. The nation of Israel had given themselves over to the gods of the people. Now for you, if if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, uh, God had called the nation of Israel out of all the nations. He had created this nation. He had created this people. He called Abram 
Abram, he was, he was not a, a, you know, the stellar dude. He wasn't like some faithful man. He wasn't some holy man. Uh, Abram was just as wicked as everyone else, just as messed up as, uh, as the people around him. But God uh, chose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He says, Abram, I want you and I'm going to make you a great nation. You and your wife are going to be uh, the leaders of this great nation. And God called them out uh, of darkness and brought them into a new land. Um, and, and he did. He created his people and his people began to grow up and, and they were living down in Egypt. And we're told in the Bible they became slaves to the Egyptians. Some 400 years went by. They were slaves in Egypt. And God sent another leader, Moses, who would deliver the nation of Israel from their slavery and give them a new land. And we're told in the Bible that they traveled for some 40 years to this new land. Yes, in the, in the midst of that in sin and rebelling against God, and they were learning how to follow God and all of this. And they finally come into their land. And God told them, when you come into the land that I'm giving you, you have, you have a responsibility. You have to serve me only. And I'm warning you, if you do not kill the people of the land, if you do not go and deliver, you do not put them all away, all the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, if you do not do that, then you will die. And the sad story of the nation of Israel is that they did not follow God. They did not put away all of the people of the land. And this is what happened. They began to look at the innovation of the lands. They began to look at the farming techniques and the building techniques. And they began to see how wonderful the buildings were built and how, how great their crops were and how fruitful they were. And they asked themselves this question, how is it that you can build these great buildings? How is it that you can farm these wonderful, lush farms? How is it that you do it? Oh, let us tell you. It is the God of Baal who delivers us these things. It is the God of Asherah who does these things. It's the gods of the land. And the people began to believe the lie that these false gods were the ones behind the grace and behind the blessings of the Canaanites. And they were given into these idols of their Hearts. They began to worship them. And Samuel here says, listen, you fools, these are not real. They are dead idols. Turn from them. Forsake them. And so, so here in the text, we see that the sort of first step in repentance is confession of your sin against God. The first step in repentance is confession of sin. The act of putting away idols is the act of confession. They are confessing that they have an idol problem. As you look at this, confession brings really your sin into the light. Confession is being honest that you have idols. To put away an idol, to kill an idol, to take these little statues and to, to burn them or to destroy them as they were instructed meant that they must accept that they had them. These idols would have been in their tents. These idols would have been in their homes. They would have been poles out in the, in the street where they would have worshiped and they would have had to have acknowledged that they had possession of them in order to put them away. They couldn't tuck them in a corner. They couldn't put them under their pillows and just sort of forget about them. No, they had to acknowledge them in order to destroy them. As we'll see in a moment, the nation of Israel confesses their sin as sin against God. 
One of the most maturing signs of a believer, of a repentant believer, is when they, when they begin to change and transition from, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against so and so, I've done such, this, these things, to I have sinned against the Lord. Like David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Our sin fundamentally is an attack not against individuals, though it is that it is an attack against God. When we sin, we are rebelling against God and against God's good authority in our life. Because God created us, because He made us, we are accountable to Him. We do not get to choose how to live life our own way. That is sin. We see that evident all throughout the Bible. We see especially in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve say, you know what, God, you chose for us to live this way, but we're rather going to go this way. We're going to live our own way. But the promise of Scripture, as we heard in the prayer of confession, is that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. As Christians, we rightly understanding the gospel are not afraid to confess our sin. But confession is hard. Confession is hard. Look, I, I have a sinful heart and it is hard to be honest when I'm wrong. It's hard to be honest not only to myself and to others, but to God when I've sinned. And, and it's, and brothers and sisters, it's, I know it's hard for you. So, so I don't want to say like, oh, confession is some easy thing, man, you just get on the confession thing. No, it is hard. It's hard because we have to tell the truth. Confession is telling the truth to yourself and to others and to God about yourself. It's saying true things. And when we are growing to confess our sins, we need to learn. Because see, in sin, we learn to lie. We learn to lie about ourselves and about our sin. We, we lie about our idols. No, I don't have an idol in my home. No, no, no. I don't have any idols and everything's good. But confession is saying true words about our sin. And so it begins, repentance begins with confession by being honest with our sin, not trying to cover it up, not trying to hide it, not trying to say, you know, I don't have these problems. No, it's just being honest. I am a sinner and I need help. I'm a sinner and I need help. But repentance is more than feeling sorry about your sin. It is more than especially being sorry that you got caught. True repentance, as we see in the text, is turning from your sin. The great Puritans recovered after the Reformation. This idea of repentance is not penance, but stopping. True repentance is saying no to sin and yes to God. True repentance is, is, is more than just sort of this process. That's sanctification. Repentance is forsaking sin, saying, look, I'm done with sin. I'm done with this and I want God. And this is what we see in the text. Look, look what they did. Samuel says, look, if you're going to return to the Lord with all your heart, then this is what you must do. You have to turn away from these foreign gods. You've got to turn away 
And you've got to turn toward. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 3. You have to put off the old man and put on the new. Repentance is taking off old things and putting on new things. Turning from sin. Repentance is radical in its nature. What did Jesus say about repentance? Look, if you want to follow me, you better get knives out. You better get stakes out. You better start cutting your hands off and plucking your eyes out. Jesus didn't mean that literally, but he did mean that figurative. And figuratively, what that means is repentance has to be radical. Repentance is not something that you do casually. It's not something, as you'll see, you do alone. John Owen famously says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friends, repentance is about killing sin, about killing their idols. They were to take those idols out and burn them alive. They were to kill these things, chop down the Asherah poles. They were to put them away, not just hide them, bury them. They were to obliterate them. And in our hearts, what we need to do is not just sort of say, ah, it's not a big deal. We need to kill the sin in our hearts. We not only see repentance as turning from sin, but we also see repentance as turning towards something else. Repentance is not going back to neutral. Repentance isn't just sort of saying, okay, I'm back at even here. Everything's even. No, repentance is, is, is forsaking the worship of something else for the worship of God. It's turning from sin to the Lord. Because you were created by God, you were created to worship God. You were created to worship. You are a worshiping being. We worship every day. Every day of our life, we're worshiping something. It's what you give your attention to. It's what you give your heart to. It's what keeps you up late at night, what you're worried about right now, what you're thinking about. If it's the crock pot, if it's the dinner, if it's whatever you have going on, if it's the hamburgers, the, 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 you know, the things you're throwing on the grill tomorrow, that's what you're worried about. You know, the leisure that you're going to have tomorrow on that holiday, on the holiday. Well, then friend, then your idol is leisure. Your idol is laziness. What, what is it that's captivating your, is it the worship of God? Is it the glory of God? Is it the honor of God? Not that these things are unimportant, not that these things we shouldn't have leisure. But the question is, does it demand our time and our affection and our efforts? Is it what our money goes to? What our wallets are spent on? What is it? Nathan and I talk often about budgets and one of the things is when, in budgeting, when you see where you're spending the money, well friends, that's where your idols are. Right there, you can see them lying there atomized on your budget. What you give your your heart to. And, and what Samuel is saying, listen, do you want to give all of your heart to the Lord? Then this is what you have to do. In a Deuteronomy faction, he, he's saying, listen, you've got to follow the Lord. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You have to worship Him and worship Him alone. God alone is worthy of our worship. Our idols offer so much to us. They, they say, listen, if you will just give yourself to these things, if you will just bow down and worship, then you will have joy, then you will have deliverance. But the friends, I want to remind you this morning that none of your idols in your heart, none of your sin will ever free you. It will never save you. It will keep you and it will keep you and it will keep you. But what we must do is turn from our sin and to the Lord. That is the first step in returning to the Lord. You have to repent of your sins, confess and turn. Be honest with one another and be honest with yourself and to God that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Secondly, in verses five through 11, we see that we must trust in Christ alone. We return from our sin and to trust in Christ alone. 
We are told that Samuel gathered the nation of Israel together at Mizpah, a location there where he is going to perform a renewal service, if you will, a covenantal renewal service. A way, uh, perhaps a spouse, a husband and wife renews their covenant. They're going to renew their covenants here at Mizpah. And we see here that he tells them to trust God, to trust that God alone can save by confessing your sins. To God. Confession not only is a way to repent of your sin, it's a way to demonstrate your trust in God. And think about this for a moment. You are telling God what He already knows about you. You're bringing into light the very facts that are going to be used against you in your trial. Can, you know, when someone confesses to a crime, if they commit a crime and they confess that, those that confession, right, is used at their trial uh, to demonstrate that they are guilty of their sin and are guilty of their action and deserving the punishment that their actions deserve. When we confess our sins, we are saying, listen, this is what has made me guilty and deserving of eternal judgment from you. But we're not afraid in confession. We're not fearful in confession. Confession is a means of trusting that God has provided a sufficient satisfaction to his wrath. That God has satisfied his anger toward our sin, as we'll see in a moment, through the death of Christ. So truly trusting in the Lord comes really to this point in our life where we're being honest about our sin. That you recognize that you've not only sinned against others, but against the Lord. And that your sin is a willful attack upon God and His majesty. And so, as James exhorts us, therefore confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We're not afraid to be honest with others. That's what they do here in the, in the text. They say that we have sinned against the Lord. Verse 6, they cry out. They're honest with themselves and with others and with God that we've sinned and we're trusting that God, you alone, can save. We see also in the text that we trust God by praying regularly and persistently. Twice in the text, we see Samuel praying for the people. He says, listen, here's what we're going to do. Let's get together at Mizpah. Let's get together and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to stand before God for you. Samuel here uh, is mirroring the role that Moses played and he's, as he prayed for that wicked nation of Israel in the wilderness. When God was ready to wipe out the nation, Moses went before the Lord and says, no, kill, don't kill them, don't kill them. And God forgave them. And here we see that prayer is a means of trusting God to save. We actually open our mouths and cry out to God. We see later in the text that that when the Philistines were going to attack, this time the people act a little differently than they did in the stories before. This time the peoples don't gather the ark and say, hey, let's send the ark to battle. This time the people actually do what they're supposed to do and following God, they tell Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us so that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. At this renewal service, 
Samuel faithfully prays for his people. Prays that God would save his people. And friends, when we pray regularly and persistently, we are demonstrating our trust that God alone can save. Prayer demonstrates your helplessness in every area of your life. When you pray, you are telling others, you're telling yourself, you're telling God, God, I can't do this. Only you can. My enemy is too great. My sin too deep. My idol too big for me to be saved. I can't, I've made a mess of my life. I've made a mess of this whole thing and only you, God, can make it right. But we see here a persistence in the people. Do not cease, in verse 8, to cry out, to cry out. Don't, don't cease. There's a persistence in him. Like a child persistently asking for something. Uh, you know, so often we see children asking, perhaps if you're a grandparent, you see children, they're just like, hey, can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? Like day in and out. I remember my kid, that kids do this often to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, leave me alone. But there's, there's something sweet in that. That often we miss and we, we forsake a persistence to get what we want, a persistence to, to have our fathers, to have our mothers answer our requests. Brothers and sisters, may we have such persistence in our prayers before God. Don't cease to pray. Uh, repentance and faith is not something, a one-off kind of thing. Oh, you know, God, forgive me my sins. Amen. That's not it. Uh, it. It is a persistent crying out after the Lord, save me, save me, save me, save me. I know many of you saints have that kind of prayer in your life, but it is, it, it is persistent. It's ongoing. We see also, we see also in this text that, that the nation of Israel turned to the Lord and in that they were relying on God alone. As the, as the Philistines gather themselves, they see sort of an opportunity to attack, like the, the prey is settled in, uh, they're at Mizpah, everyone's there. The Philistines are like, yeah, we're going to take this as an opportunity, a military strike here, and we're going to kill all of these little weak Philistines. We're told later in, in, in 1 Samuel 13 that, that the Israelites don't even have weapons. Uh, the, the Philistines have, have taken all of their weapons and the ability to make weapons. All the, the, the Israelites really have are, are some gardening tools. That, that's really all that they were really permitted to have. And, and so they were easy prey. They were easy victims to this attack. But in the midst of that, there's a moment of, of sort of you wonder in the text as you see the nation again sort of being afraid of the Philistines. But in that moment, they trust they rely alone. They rely on the Lord. And we see Samuel here offering a sacrifice uh, on their behalf. Again, we are reminded that God provides salvation through judgment. Through the death of someone else, God provides deliverance from their enemies. And so returning to the Lord begins with repentance. It, 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 it goes on to trusting in a sacrifice. And in our text, we don't really see this sacrifice, this whole burnt offering is a foreshadow to a sacrifice that would come later. Sacrifice where Christ, the Son of God, who was perfect in all of His life, who was fully God and fully man, who came 
to this earth, the God-man came and lived a perfect life, who was a perfect sacrifice. And we're told in the Bible that He died on the cross for our sin so that all those who repent of their sins and trust in Him would be saved. And then we are told later that His resurrection was the, the seal, the, the justification that comes through the resurrection for those who trust in Him. So friend, the only way that you can be delivered from your sin the only way that you can be saved from God's just wrath is by turning from your idols and trusting in Christ. It's the only way. It's only through that that we can be saved. Finally, we see in our endeavor to return to the Lord, we must not stop short. But we also see in our text a final act of remembrance. We are told in verses 12 through 17 that Samuel took a stone and set it up at Mizpah between Mizpah and Shin and called the name of the stone Ebenezer. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, it was at the village of Ebenezer that the nation of Israel was defeated by the Philistines and lost the ark of God. In a single day, the nation was devastated, all of its leaders destroyed, half of its army obliterated, and the, and the symbol of God's presence taken captive. And Samuel uses that experience as a reminder to the people of God that only the Lord has the power to save. That when you give yourself to human ingenuity, to your own wisdom, to your own way, living life your own way, it will end in destruction. But if you will go God's way, if you will turn from your idols and trust in Him, then He will save. We're told that He sets this stone up, Ebenezer. It literally means a stone of help, a helping stone. It was, a, it was a stone that would be a reminder. No longer would they look to Asherahs and to Baals to save. They would be reminded by this giant stone, this Ebenezer, to look to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, so often in the Bible, it is the, it is the task of remembrance, of reminders. This is a, a great little task that you could really take of studying God's word. Look how often in the Bible there is an exhortation to remember or be reminded of the grace of God toward you. That is what the Christian life is about. It's not about learning things and just sort of forgetting these things. Sort of we make a decision and then we move forward. No, no, you, you understand that you read your Bible every day and you read the same stories every day and you, you've read the thing before. You've read through the Bible before and you're doing it again this year and you're making your way and oh yeah, you're, you're seeing these stories again. It is a reminder to you of the grace of God. But not only that, in our own lives, we need to be reminded of where God has been gracious to us. A journaling might be a great task that you could take up, a way to sort of write down the way God has been gracious towards you. You know, look back over it years later and be reminded of God's past faithfulness to you. Remember that only the Lord can save. This is what we gather to do each Lord's Day, to remind ourselves each week, week in and week out. We do the same thing every week because we want to remind ourselves that God and God alone can save through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
We see also in this text a final summary of, of really Samuel's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. We're going to be transitioning from Samuel to Saul, from Samuel's faithfulness to Saul and his leadership of the nation of Israel. And as we see this, I, I just hope you'd see God's hand in being faithful to his people. That God is gracious towards sinners and towards his people, though they have rebelled against him time and time again, God raises up faithful leaders to faithfully shepherd his people. This is a measure of God's grace in our lives. Friend, how, how far have you gone? Have you gone too far? Have you been out and about sin too long? Have you sinned too much? Friend, you will never sin too much. We will never traverse too far. Remember that He and He alone can save. Repent of your sins and trust Trust fully in Christ and remember that the Lord alone has the power to save. Friends, today hear the words of the prodigal, prodigal's father to come home. Or take and, and eat the words of Isaiah. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear too dull that he cannot hear. Cry out to God. Cry out to God wherever you are, wherever you are in your life, whatever sin is before you, however dark it is, cry out to God and He, and He promises He will say. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray today that as we gather, we would be reminded of our sin we would have lips free to confess. We would turn from the idols of our lives and to trust in Christ. Lord, we cannot do this in our own strength. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to descend upon our hearts, to give us new hearts, new loves, to love you with all of our hearts, soul, and mind. Help us to be reminded this week of your faithfulness to us, to be reminded of your power to save. And Lord, may we give you the glory for all the work you do in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.